Welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. This week, I'm sat opposite Roz Singleton. Roz is the Managing Director of UK Broadband. She's the Chair of the Advisory Board of UK 5G, and she's an angel investor. How did you get into telco and just tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I've been in telco about 30 years now. I started out many, many years ago before, well, before Telefonica was even sell now when it was still a BT company. And that was my first job in telco. Before that, I'd been all sorts of things, receptionist, tea lady, you know, you name it. But I started off actually getting people's cars. So I know some people are now fairly senior at Telefonica. And also doing mobile number portability, which is when you move your mobile number from one network to another. And I actually did that on a fax machine, which tells you all you need to know is to fax off quite regularly. So that was how I started out. I've been very fortunate ever since to have a number of opportunities come up. And I've ended up being the managing director of a smallish wireless business. Okay. So that's UK Broadband. It's UK Broadband. So what drew you to telecommunications in the first place then? And what kind of, why have you stayed in the industry for the last 30 years? That's something I've often asked myself. So what drew me in the first place was actually just a job. And then I really liked the people I work with. And I was really lucky actually. We were building one of the first ever networks across the country. It was just when Selna at the time, and they'd originally launched a network mainly in London, and we're building out across the country. And lots of the people I worked with in the senior technical people were willing to spend time with me and explain how things work. So whilst I was doing night school, which they also sponsored, and I just did HND in business and finance, so I'm spectacularly unqualified. They were also kind enough to spend time with me teaching me about how networks work and about how telecommunications works. But I've actually found that through my whole career, and that's the thing that's kept me there, is largely... There are lots of people who love to share what they do and share information about what they do and are really open around that. I did have a couple of brief sort of forays out into the world of security and I was a consultant for a while, but largely ended up being mainly in telecoms. So I guess at this point, it's what I know and I still love it. That's great to hear that there's so many people in your industry that have helped you and obviously helping others along the way. So UK Broadband, what do you do? Yeah, well, very few people have heard of us unless you live in telco world. We're only about 120 people, um, but I'm going to say 120 really great people. I'm very proud of our business. We were actually bought by 3UK, the mobile network, about 18 months ago for 300 million. And that effectively is because we have a lot of spectrum that's effective for 4 and 5G and is a big part of the 5G spectrum moving forwards. But also, as a business, we run something that's called the Relish Network in London, which is a wireless broadband for customers, and it's going to be called 3 Broadband from actually Monday. And we also do private campus networks, so we manage operational networks for important sites like Heathrow Airport, for example, or Felixstowe, which is the busiest container port in Britain. For example, we manage our operational networks for them and provide them with exceptional availability and service, which, again, I'm really proud of. So all of this background, obviously UK broadband, has led you to become chair of the UK 5G advisory board. Yeah, I think uh, the chairship comes from for a number of reasons. So the UK 5G advisory board is actually about developing the ecosystem in the UK, not about developing the telecoms network. So actually, I think some of the angel investing I've done and, and my networks around angel investing and also through having been in the industry for 30 years, it gave me some of the advantages I'd need to be able to join that board. What I would say is, is it's very much about being able to make 5G effective for businesses and consumers and actually use it to try and improve the productivity of the UK as a whole 
rather than necessarily being another, I suppose, string to the mobile companies both. Okay, so let's go down the really simple route. What is 5G and what are the benefits for people across the globe? Well, it's quite interesting, really. So 5G is a new technology for mobile networks and how they work. It's actually part of it is called new radio, which sort of tells you what you need to know is it's, it's a new way of sending radio signals basically from a base station to a device, whether that's, you know, a phone or, or some other device. It contains quite a lot of different bits of technology rather than just being about, you know, as we understand mobiles and devices today, it has things around Internet of Things. So something called narrowband radio, which is a, basically for lots and lots of very small devices that don't need much data to move around all over the place. It's a good way of moving data around for those devices. So, for example, I don't know, if you collect a load of data in your house from your fridge, your alarm system, you know, your garage door, wherever it happens to be, then how all that data gets from one place to another is, is over some of this narrowband technology. So, you know, machine-to-machine communications as well. One of the other things it provides is more security than 4G did. So as a radio system, it is more secure. And probably one of the biggest and most important features is that it's low latency. Low latency really just means that the communications will be much faster effectively. So um, if you are sending a signal from point A to point B, whereas on you know, 4G or copper technology, you know, it might take, let's say, 50 milliseconds on 5G, eventually it can be as low as you know, 10 milliseconds or, or even lower, theoretically. Okay, so where are we with this? Well, there is no, as far as I'm aware, in, in the UK, there is no commercially deployed, as of this moment today, there is no commercially deployed 5G. However, all the MNOs are running trials and are looking to roll things out. We'll be running a small trial with some customers in Camden to try and make sure we build the best products for our customers because we talk to our customers a lot and it's really important that we make sure we have the best way to deliver broadband to them. And broadband's what most of the mobile networks will uh, launch originally. At the same time, there are lots of projects going on. DCMS, so the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, are funding some trials that are going on across the UK. So these cover agritech, which includes you know, fisheries, as well as you know, your, your more earth-based agriculture, cows, which is very cool. There's a really nice app called Me and Moo <laughs> that you can get. It covers automotive engineering, healthcare. Actually, Bristol have a smart tourism trial going on that launched about two weeks ago officially in Bristol, and they did a simultaneous cast between somebody singing, somebody playing the violin, and somebody playing the piano. And because the speed of the 5G network is so fast, you can actually hear all that at once. So, I mean, imagine if you're in a band and you're in different places across the country, which actually is true of a lot of bands, you, in theory, could all rehearse together at the same time. Yeah, because, again, latency, you know, affects music a lot. Or, you know, remote surgery, remote physio, those sorts of things. A couple of the uh, entrepreneurs I work with deal with rehabilitation or physical therapy type devices you know particularly if you think about using vr so you could use vr for physical therapy rehabilitation and actually you could in theory have two people at either end doing physio so if you take an older person stuck at home who needs to have daily physio sessions for a physio to drive to their house you know go and see them make sure they're moving all those sorts of things is actually quite time consuming and expensive you've got somebody who's actually mobile independently you know, with a, a camera and even a VR headset or even without one, 
Now you can easily imagine being able to run a physio session remotely yeah. where you can see that somebody's doing their exercises correctly and making progress. You could actually make sure they're doing their exercises and massively reduce the chances that their injury was going to carry on a lot longer or you know that they would be less mobile for longer. And it, you know all those things are great for partly the health and well-being of people and also for productivity. When do we expect to be able to see 5G? Realistically, so the first devices have been launched. Um, anybody that has paid any attention to Mobile World Congress will know this, but also you'll have seen in the papers of foldable phones that have come out from Samsung and Huawei, for example. So those are starting to be you know, 5G phones and devices as we know them. Certainly home broadband routers that are for wireless broadband are in the market or will be in the market towards Q3 this year. I would expect that network build-out would be over 2020, 2021 realistically. So I would say by about 2022, we'll be thinking very seriously about some of those healthcare and industrial applications. So recently, as part of the UK 5G work, the government's test bed and trials piece of work they're doing around 5G, they have launched the Urban Connected Communities trials and the West Midlands uh, Combined Authority won that. And they're about to kick off on developing basically a citywide 5G infrastructure and set of capabilities around it. One of the key things about 5G is it's not really the mobile technology or the the radio technology itself. It's the fact that it's a confluence of lots of different technologies. So things like, you know, AI, the Internet of Things. So rather than necessarily being about 5G, it's about all this information being available and having a fast enough way to put it together that you can do something meaningful and useful, you know, in lots of different places. Yeah, applications for healthcare, tourism, all sorts of things aren't necessarily dependent entirely on 5G, but it is a really useful spearhead to gather them around. In the UK at the moment, and in my house, I only live four miles from the city centre, and I don't even get 4G in my house. Will mm. 5G reach further, or is it going to be the similar sort of thing as 4G, where you need a mask to be within striking distance. So radio waves, if you remember back to school, right? radio waves are radio waves. That is true of all radio waves. No matter what G you are transmitting over the radio waves, the radio waves are still just radio waves at different frequencies. So I've only really learned about this in any detail in the last few years, is that obviously the higher the frequency, the shorter the distance it goes and the less likely it is to penetrate through walls, windows, those sorts of things. If you stick a crane up in the way of something, it can cause a problem. So... One of the things that we need to be aware of is that actually, say, 5G may not reach out into the country if your house is one of, let's say, three in the middle of nowhere. But actually, 4G services can provide you perfectly reasonable coverage. The trick is to actually just get the coverage out there. And at the moment, there is a part of the country that isn't covered. And Ofcom and the government's stated intention is to take an outside-in policy where we try and make sure that fibre and wireless builds are concentrated in the, you know, almost on the outer edges of the country where there are less masks already and coverage and bring it in so the cities are the sort of last place to be considered in some ways. It doesn't mean nobody will build in the cities, but the commercial mechanisms to drive that investment are already there. The question is, where do we need to help support that investment? And that is outside of major cities normally. So do you feel we have a social obligation to provide the network to the wider population? Yes, in some ways I do. In other ways, we are not set up in a regulatory sense or a governance sense to actually request that private companies do that. And it's one of the areas I think that we might be missing in terms of how we license spectrum. 
So currently Ofcom licenses Spectrum by auctioning it off to the highest bidder. We often hear about, you know, so many billions of pounds or millions of pounds have been paid by the various mobile companies for right to use a bit of Spectrum, which enables them to deliver this service to their customers. And basically the more of it you have, the more service you can deliver and in theory, better service to your customers. At the moment, the next auctions are tying geographical requirements to some of that spectrum. So in some of the lower spectrum, which will go a little bit further, or actually quite a long way further, there is a geographical coverage requirement to cover a lot more of the country, which obviously has quite a big capital investment attachment to it. One of the things I would say is actually that coverage isn't just a feature of geography, it's also a feature of you know, age, whether or not somebody wants something, and to an extent, income. So there are a number of people who don't, for example, have Wi-Fi who might use their mobiles to tether or don't have any internet at all across the country. And actually, there are quite a few more people in the country than you would imagine. And some people just don't want broadband or the internet. You know, that's perfectly fine. But if you take, for example, some of our more vulnerable people in society, then they may not be able to or want to have broadband or even know that they can have it. And actually, it could be a key feature of looking after their wellness and the health and social care in the future. So I think it's worth considering how we make sure that uh, rather than just covering, let's say, national parks and things like that, we actually are covering the needs that our society has. How will 5G help startups? I think it will provide some opportunities for startups. There is a change coming, and I can't see what that change is entirely. I mean, partly because I'm too old, and partly because you never quite know what's around the next corner. But for example, if you think about how we get information out, we're all very centred around our phones, right, as the primary device. So even when we're at home, actually, we quite often will be attached to our Wi-Fi using our phone, and our phone is what we look at all the time. And it's where we store information and payments, and it tells people about us. If you look at markets like... China, for example, everything is done on one of a couple of platforms like Weibo. You know, so everything, payments, shopping, actually a lot of the shopping over there now, you don't pay anyone. You put stuff in your basket, you scan it, and then you pay and you walk out. That's kind of it. You don't need to go through a till. And obviously the background of those stores is also managed in a similar way. And there are, there are trials like that going on in quite a lot of places in the world. So that level of connectivity and ability to identify where things are, where people are, context is going to become massively interesting. So I can't even imagine what people will be able to come up with that will be useful or helpful or purchasable. If you think Uber was unthinkable 10 years ago, absolutely unthinkable. And now, you know, we're thinking about a world where driverless cars actually mean everything is effectively an Uber or a Lyft and you are just calling a car and getting into it and it's taking you somewhere. And nobody owns cars anymore, at least not in the cities. You know, that is one actually very conceivable view of the world now that was really not there. That was actually one of the things I was going to ask you was about driverless cars in a remote location ah. and how that would be affected. And Well, you would never have a device that didn't have a fail-safe in it for health and safety reasons. It's quite interesting, actually. There are a lot of robots and robot technology where the ideas are great, but they've come from people who make technical ideas but have never worked in an operational environment. So, for example, they bring up fire safety risks. If you have a large number of engines, petrol, machines, you know, whatever, in an area together, 
there is a fire safety risk if you're on a critical national infrastructure site like a port or an airport that is massively problematic because the consequences of that risk are so huge so there are a load of opportunities for people who are more experienced and have that knowledge to get in and help those companies as well and that's kind of part of for me what the uk 5g community is incidentally you can join uk 5g on the website if you're interested and if we need your advice or help we will come and ask you for it but you know that's part of what that community is for is to help provide advice and support around those sorts of questions and to help build a community around it so whether you work for a very small company or a bigger company who are vastly experienced or you know you're out of college and you've got an amazing idea the idea is that you know we can hopefully work together a little bit because people never achieved anything very much largely by working independently unless you're Einstein so I really think you know that sort of collaboration is something that we can do much better nowadays and we need to just turn our minds to a little bit more. And it sounds like not just for startups, but for the whole of society, that 5G will be extremely beneficial. Even those people that may not use the internet, it might be beneficial in some way. I think it's not just 5G. I think the idea of actually being more connected as a country. So, you know, quite a lot of Scotland, for example, isn't very well covered. And actually what we could achieve is what they call modal shift. So, you know, moving people out of cars onto trains, for example, if you had decent coverage on a train line, you would possibly think about actually you know I'll go between these two points on a train rather than in a car because I could work you know or watch a movie or whatever whereas actually at the moment the chances are more likely that you won't have decent wi-fi all the way you'll be stood up half the time you know those sorts of things but if you can change those factors and this is this tiny bit that we can do to help out on that side if you can change some of those factors if you can make it possible that people can work from home more so work-life balance is better or so you can build better businesses in different parts of the country rather than everything being so centric to cities and in particular you know London and the South East then actually we could do some really useful things. Talking of useful things let's transition into your third of your jobs that you do (laughs) which is angel investing which you've been doing for about three years now. Yeah. So why did you start investing? It's very interesting actually as I often talk to people about this I was at a Women in Telecoms and Technology event and it was about, you know, entrepreneurship and those sorts of things. They still run those events annually. And I saw Sarah Turner, who's a CEO of Angel Academy, which is the angel group I invest with and I'm on the advisory board for, and one of her entrepreneurs that they'd funded speaking about big data and data lakes. And I come from an IT background. So for me, all this was like, oh, I know that. It's really interesting. And actually... They were both lovely, very approachable, and I'd never even thought about angel investing before because it struck me as, you know, a bunch of guys in blue suits marching around who knew spreadsheets and had hundreds of thousands of pounds to invest. And none of those things are true of me. I mean, I'm pretty good with a spreadsheet, but I can't read a balance sheet in the same way that, let's say, my finance director can. So, yeah, I saw Sarah and I got in touch with her and she very kindly invited me to an Angel Academy event. And it was just really nice. I was looking at the notes actually yesterday because I was looking for something else from the first time I went. And I didn't invest in any of the companies, but it was interesting and stimulating and very friendly. People were helpful if I asked some questions about angel investing. And so that was how I ended up doing it, because actually the environment was comfortable for me. I didn't feel exclusionary at all. And I even went on something called Investor Academy, which Angel Academy do, which is like a four-hour session that teaches you about things like heads of terms and tax rules and, you know, things you might do in due diligence. So, again, you know, that just that level of support and help 
that was really useful for me starting out in the same way that when I learned to play golf, I started off by having lessons rather than just playing. That's just the way I work. But that was, yeah, that was terrific and really helpful. Okay. So what's your personal process like when you're making an investment? A lot of it is for me about the people. I always think that people buy people and that's as true when you're investing as anything else. You absolutely have to have faith in the management team of the business. And I also have to believe they're going to take advice. That's massively important. To me, even if it's not my advice, that kind of isn't the point, but that they know when to reach out and ask for help. It's the same thing I look for with most people, actually, is, you know, do you have a clue what you don't know and where you think you need help? Because nothing's ever perfect. And there'll always be areas, whether it's, you know, let's say marketing or technology or whatever, where a startup or a scale-up has a little bit of weakness and they, they just need to be willing to take a little bit of input. Also, how willing they are to work with us and how willing they are to listen to feedback on how organised they need to be. I tend to go through a due diligence process as part of a syndicate because that's how we work as, as Angel Academy. So there'll be a group of us, somebody will lead it, and I'm just closing a deal at the moment. And we'll go through a whole process of basically coming up with a deal memo. But So, you know, everybody will have a different job. Everybody's responsible for their own due diligence at the end of the day and their own investment, obviously. But everybody will work through a different area and, you know, we put a report together, people speak in conference calls those sorts of things. So, you know, by the time you get to the end of the process, you've got a degree of confidence that you at least understand what the business is doing, what the level of risk is, and what the entrepreneurs are like. And where I can, I like to actually talk to the founding team quite a lot, because I I do think that's really telling, you know, how much of an idea they have about their business, how well they know their numbers, how much they know how important their numbers are. Do you like to speak to them face to face? Yeah, I prefer that. So does that mean that your investments are within the UK or within train distance from you? All my investments actually so far are entrepreneurs who are based in the UK primarily. I would consider abroad, but again, it's that contact thing of getting to know someone. It's not like I need to see them all the time. It's at least, you know, seeing them face to face once. If there's something physical to see or talk about as well, then, then obviously it helps to see that. So for example, we invested in Technology Will Save Us last year, which is a company that makes educational and technical toys. They are brilliant. I've actually bought loads of them for grown-ups as well. Things like a, a make-your-own-synth kit, okay. you know, and stuff like that. So I am the archetypal nerdy auntie, you know, absolutely terrific. But they have a little factory in East London. So I, I didn't have time to get to see that which jerked me, but lots of my colleagues who were, you know, co-investing went to see it. So we get reports back and we share information. So when I can't do that myself and somebody else can, you know, that's really useful too. So obviously you work full-time already. Yeah. So angel investing is kind of on the side. Yeah. Interest. It's a hobby. A hobby. <laughs> yeah, an expensive hobby. But yes. You know, skiing's not that cheap either. True, true. <laughs> but as a hobby, do you think that limits the amount of investments you make? Or do you think that even if you were doing angel investing full-time, you'd still only maybe make one investment a year? I tend to make, actually, the last couple of years, I've made four or five investments in a year. But... What I would say is, yes, time is my constraining factor quite often. And weirdly, as with everybody in the world, everything seems to bunch up at once. Like it'll, everything will be quiet at one point and then everything will be busy. So at the moment, literally every part of my life is very, very busy. I think if I was independently wealthy and I wasn't working, I think I probably would do more, actually. But I am time limited. And in terms of doing due diligence, understanding a business well enough to think whether or not 
I will get a return on it. Plus the fact, you know, money is limited and I want to see a return on it. I can't really afford to just be throwing it away. So I'm building my portfolio quite carefully at the moment. But I'd love to spend more time working with entrepreneurs and, you know, looking at their businesses because it's endlessly interesting. And I learn about new technologies. I've known about blockchain for like three or four years, largely because of the angel investing or at a level that most people wouldn't necessarily have understood it beyond Bitcoin. You know, big data is another area of interest. And I learn about all sorts of different things. And I love that. It actually, I find it very inspiring and it, it helps the rest of my life because it just gives you different ideas and different viewpoints. Sounds like you really, truly enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I don't have time to do stuff I don't enjoy, largely. That's the way I try and look at it. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's exactly what an invested investor is. So you are part of a largely female angel investment group. Mm -hmm. Let's just go back to telco a bit and something that you wanted to have a chat about. Is telco industry a diverse industry? Because an angel investment we were chatting beforehand can be, can't be. Mm. So what's telco like? So Angel Academy is about 70% female. And often when men go in there, they are rather taken aback because they're not used to being a minority in a room. And actually most of my life in telco has been like that, particularly since I've been on the more technical side. And I don't think it's got that much better. Uh, Certainly, I know, because we obviously try and recruit a very diverse workforce. We have people from all over the world, which I'm very proud of. And I really enjoy the mix of cultures that we have. But in terms of gender diversity, we are not in a place I would like to be on our technical teams. Central London is probably a little bit more difficult in some ways. But telco generally is still largely a preserve of white 50-year-old guys, or it feels that way to me, probably because I'm at a certain level. Probably because a lot of the big telcos are based in the suburbs as well, which makes a difference. But there is definitely not the level of diversity at board level that I would hope to have seen by now. How do you change that? Short of being in charge of the world. (laughs) (laughs) What I mean is, do we educate from GCSE or whatever Uh, level? The problem I have is I don't know the answer to how we change that. And it is one of the answers I would love to figure out. And I do think about, and obviously I'm a member of quite a number of groups, so there's something called the technology charter or whatever, and, and companies sign up to it, and it's a diversity thing. And it's a really great initiative, but I can't remember what it's called. But yeah, there are a number of initiatives across the industry to try and increase the number of young people going into engineering, obviously from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, which includes gender diversity, ethnic diversity, neurological diversity, the whole kick bill. And I don't know the answer to getting more people, and particularly young women, into engineering. The numbers have not climbed since I was, you know, a teenager. And that's a really big concern. How much of it is down to, you know, relative image, relative pay, I don't know. What I do know is that when we do get the graduates, quite a lot of people fall out of engineering fairly early on in their careers for a variety of reasons and end up going into things like accounting, for example, because I think that there are slightly more friendly environments for people who want a different sort of balance to their life. So I honestly don't know what the answer is. I do know that I think it's massively helpful. And certainly I believe that businesses do better with more diverse teams because you need a a range of views. But it sounds like your early career and throughout you did have quite positive feelings from people along the way. So maybe you just need to do that more. Well, yeah, I I had lots of people who helped me, like male and female. And because of the nature of telecoms, primarily male. They didn't help me because I was a woman or or because I wasn't a man or, you know, it wasn't anything to do with that. It was a fact I was interested and largely brave enough to go and talk to fairly senior people and ask for their help or because I was doing college work and those sorts of things. And I am going to say, you know, I'm not a trained engineer. 
I'm quite technical just because I've learned a lot over the years, but I'm not a trained engineer in any way, shape or form. And all the support and help I've had has been, you know, from all different areas of the business. I love learning and I've worked in nearly every possible area now of a telco, I think, one way or another. But I know we can all support the people that are coming up behind us, again, you know, regardless almost of who they are. But it is quite difficult to say, actually, how do we do that in a way that makes sure that we are not just picking people who are like us? Because it's really easy to support somebody who is like you. You know, even if they don't look like you, maybe who has the same sort of thought patterns as you or the same political views. And I'm increasingly conscious that we have to be quite careful not to be so homogenous around those things. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, Roz, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've actually learned a lot about 5G <laughs> and telecommunications. Personally, I didn't actually know a huge amount. But also just to hear about your diverse background and now how much you're enjoying Angel Investing is just absolutely brilliant. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online and be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor.